Welcome to Hiawatha Church again. My name's Chris. If you're visiting, I'm one of the pastors here. So welcome to our church again, as I think Spencer and Peter both uh, said. To what is kind of like a 10 o'clock service, it feels like, functionally, right? Um, which is the way we used to do things around here before we had two services, 10 o'clock uh, every Sunday. So hope you all enjoyed one less hour of sleep last night. We are in the book of Matthew right now, the Gospel of Matthew. So uh, if you are newer to our church, uh, that I'll catch up speed here a little bit before we dive into Matthew 18, 1 to 9. But uh, we have been talking about Jesus through the lens of the Gospel of Matthew. The whole Bible is about Christ, but uh, the first four books of the New Testament especially are the climax of the whole, the whole storyline, uh, the whole um, biblical storyline, redemptive history. So uh, it's a special place, a good place, probably the best place really if you're newer to the scriptures to pick up and start reading because of how much it references the Old Testament and shows how Christ is that goal of all of it, uh, but also how he and his ministry and his words, his teachings, the event of the cross and his uh, death there and his resurrection three days later spills over into the New Testament. So it all explain the New Testament basically explains that. The book of Acts right afterwards proclaims it, the rest of the New Testament explains it. But everything in the Old Testament is a whisper of it as well. So everything is about it. Matthew 18, still before Jesus dies on the cross for the sins of the world and races again. So he's building a storyline ahead. And uh, we've been talking a lot lately these past couple of weeks, more specifically about him and his mission because Jesus does. He gets much more explicit, whereas in the earlier parts, it's certainly not hidden from us, but it's more demonstrated rather than declared explicitly. So a couple of chapters now, since chapter 16, we're in chapter 18 now, he's getting a little bit more clear on who he is to the disciples, not so much to the crowds, and there are reasons for that, but he's starting to reveal more of his identity as the Son of God, not just a prophet, not just a good man, but the Son of God in flesh who's here to die for the sins of the world, and that being his, uh, the primary um, uh, bullseye of his, uh, his mission. Many ways to describe that, but that's the bullseye. So today, we're going to look at more of what it means to be a part of this kingdom that God is setting up in the world. That's what he's doing. It's another way to describe his mission is he's setting up a kingdom of God on earth. And he's redeeming it. He's restoring it from its fallen state. It's been that way since for most of history when angels and people like people like us rebelled against him. He said committed to it by sending himself into the world to become like us, to die as one of us on a cross. And that's the, that's the essence of his, his mission and how he restores the world and sets up that kingdom, a kingdom that will benefit us and not crush us. So today what he's going to do then is talk a little bit more about the kingdom, which is near but not fully here yet, but still talk about what it means to enter that kingdom uh, based on one of the questions or a question the disciples ask him, which I'll get to here in a minute. So in other words, in what state did the saved enter the kingdom? That's going to be part of today as well and all as we approach the cross. Really, it's a version of the greatest question you can ever ask yourself. It's what does it mean to be saved? God has a kingdom, a kingdom of salvation and hope and blessing and eternal life, and we are not in it. But Jesus is establishing it, and, and along the way, he's talking about how to get from here to here. And today, there's a particular bent on the type of person that enters. What are they like? What are they thinking? How do they perceive themselves? What are they doing as they're entering and he's going to uh, pick up on a lot of that today. Already been talked about, of course, but today with a particular slant on it per one of the questions of the disciples. So, with that said, entering like a child is the, the focus for today. Matthew 18, 1 to 9. And we'll be looking at the first four verses to begin. I'll come back to the latter half in a second. Uh, kind of two sections here. So, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The spirit of the question here then that the disciples ask Jesus uh, is somewhat competitive. In one sense, it's not flat out wrong to ask what greatness is because there is such a thing as greatness in God's kingdom. We see that here and just we'll talk about more of that as we go on this morning. But uh, the, the spirit of the question is somewhat competitive. We're going to see in a couple of weeks in chapter 20 how one of the mothers of two of the disciples, James and John, ask a version of this question to Jesus and just asks, who's going to sit at your right hand? In other words, who's going to be number two in your kingdom? In other words, it's a version of that. Uh, William Barclay says to all of this, though, the competitive nature, the misguidedness of asking about this type of greatness, he says, the very fact that they asked the question showed they had no idea at all what the kingdom of heaven was, which is, uh, if you're a disciple, 
you know, ouch, but that's just true. They have no idea uh, what the kingdom of God is and, and was. Because remember, Jesus has just gotten done talking about himself in lowering kinds of terms. And that's been a big theme throughout the whole gospel, but especially, like I said before, in these last two chapters, talking about himself having to suffer, having to lower himself, having to condescend himself, having to die, having to associate with the sinful, then rising again three days later. So there should have been then some kind, at least some kind of connection between what Jesus has just gotten done teaching and their thoughts about greatness in the kingdom. That suffering and lowering and greatness are somehow tied together. And the cross is the thing that brings, brings those two things together because Jesus is the greatest. He's God and he's suffering and lowering himself to the point and being exalted later through his, through his resurrection. But this is all flying over the disciples' heads at this point. Hence their misguided grasp for power and for greatness here. So Jesus understanding this and getting a sense for this responds to the question by calling a child to stand in the midst of them and uses that child as a teaching illustration. Classic Jesus here, looking out what's around him, bread, fountains, children, conversations, questions, and drawing from that to make a teaching point out of it. I mean, Jesus is a great example here of how everything in creation is about God. God is at least a whisper in everything that ever happens, uh, whether it's a negative thing or a positive thing, something that makes us yearn for redemption or something that gives us a glimpse of that redemption. He is the ultimate causer of all things you could say. And as the scriptures say, in him we move and have our being. So even our lives as well, uh, Christian or not, there's a sense of common grace in everything. So Jesus recognizes this and pulls a physical thing into the circle, as it were, and says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Let's learn something about me and about entering salvation uh, through this physical thing. So he says, truly I say to you, unless you turn, change, and become like children, you will never, note that word, never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So understand that in, this is different from the way that we perceive kids in our culture. So it's important to understand that first century Judaism, kids were essentially the, the bottom of the social totem pole. Just unimportant, uh, unlike today again in our culture. So we have to understand that. Leon Morris, one of the commentators, um, New Testament scholar I was consulting on this passage in particular this week, recounts this Jewish, first century Jewish perspective on kids and why they thought of them as so low and so unimportant. They'd say things like this. They could not fight. They could not lead. They had not had time to acquire worldly wisdom. They could not pile up riches. They just simply counted for very little. And I think this broader definition of what childlike meant, what childlike would have been heard as in the first century, is helpful because it reminds us, it reveals to us what Jesus is really getting at here. This is more than simple virtue. It's about holistic smallness. It's not about God's celebration of children either. It's not the point here is to say children are very, very great. You treat them poorly, but children are great. It's not really about kids at all because in a lot of ways, it's about how old kids are, but they can't have faith in a lot of cases. This is about using a child as an illustration for the sake of the adults who can respond to Jesus' call to eternal life, who are old enough to do that so that they can learn something about their nature and, and project that onto themselves so that they might enter properly. So, this is basically then about being humble and not about ourselves before God. So the basic question, the bigger question then is, do we believe ourselves to be like this, like children, so like we can't fight, not being able to lead, not having worldly wisdom, being simple and being poor basically before God? Do we believe ourselves to be like that before a holy God or do we believe ourselves to be more than that? That's the, bit, that's the big question. Revelation 3 is, big, is great on this as well. This is the last book of the New Testament, New Testament, but the same idea, Jesus is speaking in similar terms to the church. These are to Christians who have forgotten this. This is what he says. This is a rebuke. They're not losing their salvation here, but it's a rebuke. It's a call back to a proper way of thinking of self in relation to God. This is what he says in Revelation 3, 17 to 18. For you say, Jesus says, I am rich. I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich 
and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So basically what Jesus is saying here to bring in Matthew 18 language is you church think you're an adult but you're a child. So really there's no such thing as an adult spiritually speaking before God. We are all children in our weakness and our pitiableness and our blindness, and our poorness. This is a mind thing. But it's those who understand and believe that we are who enter and who apply that way of thinking before God. So so as to say, we cannot save ourselves. It's only Christ, the door himself, who allows us to enter the key holder. He gets us in. It's not us in our adult spiritual maturity that gets us in. Very, very offensive and very freeing at the same time. If you feel both of that, good. You're getting it. You're understanding the weight of this. It's very, very, it calls us to great condescension of self, but also, like the promise is here, to be rich and to be great, but only on the other side of Christ. God does talk about greatness as being something achievable by us, but it's only through Jesus and realizing it's not us that's great. It's God who's great, and he gives us himself. He gives us richness and gold and salve and clean clothes, spiritually speaking, when he dies for our sins that we might have eternal life in in those types of apocalyptic or prophetic imagery kind of ways. So this is also in part then what Jesus means. We read a couple of weeks ago when Jesus says, if you would follow me, if you want to be with me, you have to take up your cross and follow me, which is what crucified people usually did. They carried their cross to the place of crucifixion and they were to die. When Jesus talks in those terms, in part what he means is, this is a procession to death. It signifies the end of the self recognizing that we're nothing, we're self-emptied. That's basically what he's saying with that imagery. Galatians 6.3 says, He who believes he is something, I love how just straightforward this is. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to Christians, the Galatian church. He who believes he is something when he is nothing deceives himself. He who believes he is something, if you believe that you are something in any capacity whatsoever, something when in fact, truthfully, you are nothing, you are lying to yourself. You are actually believing a falsehood, a lie. It's not true. So the call here is don't lie to yourself. Speak truth to yourself. Speak childlike, humble, I am weak, I am poor, but I am loved by my God, truths to yourself constantly so that you can properly enter the kingdom of God. If you don't have that in your mind, see, we will never, verse 3 says, we will never enter the kingdom, never Unless we believe that we, unless we enter in a childlike way and understand that we are childlike, poor, needy, filthy, blind, pitiable, because if we don't believe that, we'll never want God's grace. We will live under the delusion that there is something that we do uh, to turn that key by ourselves, something that we do to find that door by ourselves, something that we do to turn God's head, something that we do to find those white garments, something that we do to mix up that salve and pour it on our own eyes. Something that we do to get rich before him on our own, to sort of work with some kind of commodity and make money and impress God. We will always, always, always default to that. And this is why God so tirelessly in the scriptures does this and says this and demonstrates this because he loves us. He wants us to enter. The Bible is clear that he takes no delight in the death of the the wicked. He He takes no delight in the eternal punishment of anybody. He takes no delight in and the suffering, and the outcasting, the banishment of us. He loves us. So he's lovingly suggesting, teaching these things, showing these things to us, demonstrating these things to us, so that we might know that this is who I am, this is who God is. It's all about him, not about me. And through that, that we might enter. So it's a really, it's a pride-destroying thing, really, is what this is. It's a humble and humility-infusing thing that helps us enter God's kingdom and be saved. So primarily then, like I said before, this is a mind issue. That's why we talk a lot here at Hiawatha in the Bible, because the Bible does, about being people who think. Christians should think hard, long and hard, about what it means to be a person of the gospel, to be a person of the kingdom, to be great in God's eyes. is actually to be very, very, very low. That's what it means. That's, that's, the, that's that paradigm-shifting kind of thing that Jesus is showing with the kid in the midst of them, but also teaching with his words elsewhere and here. To be great, to be blessed, to be happy, to be with God, to be protected by him and claimed by him is just to trust in him and have faith in him and to be like a child, a humble, I bring nothing to the table type child, but God brings everything. 
I think on a, if you're a parent as well, it's, it's, uh, though you don't have to be to understand this principle, but if you have kids and you think about your own children in light of all this, it's, uh, it's really helpful. If you, if you love your kids unconditionally, unconditional love for them, uh, it's, it's helpful, I think, to project that onto what God, how God moves towards us, how he loves us, what he thinks about us. In the sense that, like with, in my case, I was, my, my son, I have two girls and a, and a boy. My son the other day, it's true for my daughters, of course, too, but my son Emmett's five, and his, I was talking to him, trying to talk to him about these things that's all in my mind this week, trying to have this conversation with him. But he, um, you know, he does not define his relationship with me, so son to father, based on what he does. The, the relationship exists because of my love and Aletha's love for him. That, that's the determining factor of the relationship is we wanted to have him and God enabled us to have him. We love him. His relationship is wrapped up in our, he loves us in return, but it's our greater love for him that, that establishes that relationship. Just the other day I asked him, it's the same with God for us. He loves us first, for John, or 1 John 4.19 says, then we can respond in that love and love others through that love. But his first primary, greater, better, sacrificial love is the thing that establishes that relationship, and it's completely by grace and unconditional because it's for weak children, spiritually speaking, like us, not for mature adult, Bible scholar, you're awesome, you're a giant's type people. So it's great that he talks in these terms. Very humbling, offensive, but very freeing at the same time. But I asked Emmett uh, the other day, I thought, hope he gets the right answer here because I'm, I'm greatly failing as a parent if he doesn't. But I just asked him, is there anything that you can do to make me love you more? And he paused for a second, thought, oh boy, starting to sweat. But he says, he finally said, yes. Aaron said, no, sorry. <laughs> he said, no. Um, and I thought, oh, good. And he says, no, I got the right answer. Is there anything that you can do to make me love you less? And, and he said, no. And with a smile. I thought, just a great moment, you know, we had. And I thought, good. You know, because that, that is something that I first want him to know because it's true. But second, I want him to know that about God later. And, and if he doesn't have that from a parent, any kid does not have it from a parent, it's going to be very hard for them to hear about God as a father who loves them and not blend that with some kind of wretched conditionality, right? And some of you have had those backgrounds, and it's maybe a little bit, not impossible, obviously, because a lot of you are in Christ now, and you've made that shift, recognizing that God the Father is not like your earthly father or mother. He's different. He's better. He's unconditional in his love for you. But regardless of your past, we have to constantly hear that God is love. He is love. And he loves us unconditionally. And there's nothing that we can do to make him love us more. Nothing. There's no becoming an adult, maturing type spiritual thing that we can do and change. The turning thing, Jesus says, you have to actually change and turn to become like a child to be great. You know, because that, that's more indicative of what our relationship is like with him underneath the umbrella of his love. It's just being weak and loved, sinful and loved, broken and loved, blind and loved, not great in ourselves and loved. But same kind of thing. So similarly, those, those of us who, who enter the kingdom say, I am a loved sinner, not I am a rewarded hard worker. See the big difference? I am a, lo- I am a sinner. I am, Galatians 6.3, I am nothing. Oh, but I am loved. And we see that fully on the cross. That's a big difference than saying, I am a rewarded hard worker and servant of God. And I'm entering because of that. Very different. In fact, Jesus is very clear, and he, again, teaches this with his words, and he demonstrates it with his actions. These types will never enter the kingdom. And they could look very Jesus-y. These people, a lot of times, do look very religious. It could be some of you in this room today. Very religious, very zealous for God. You thought you were a Christian for one, five, ten, thirty years. Uh, But your spirituality, your, per- your self-perception is very misplaced. You think that you are something when you're nothing. You think that you can see when you're blind. You think that you're rich when actually you're poor. You think that you have something, you bring something to the table when you bring nothing to the table. And that's clouding the spiritual waters of your life. And, and you can't see Christ clearly and you're not entering because of that. So, and it's still possible to have these thoughts, of course, as a true Christian, because none of us are perfect here. The point is not to say, have I lost my salvation? The point is just to gut check. Who do I think I really am before God? Do I, do I perceive myself in this capacity? Have I, by his grace, turned and become like a child in all the way that we defined it earlier? Am I 
Am I falling into the trap of Revelation 3, thinking like that church that Jesus rebuked lovingly? Or am I on the other side of things in grace, perceiving rightly who I am before him? All right, then he uh, switches gears a bit. So let's move on to Matthew 18, 5 to 9. And it's, it's one flow of thought here, which I'll summarize in a minute, but uh, slightly different topics at the same time. Verse 5, whoever receives one child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So after Jesus has just got done saying, to be great is to be very low and broken and humble and needy before me. That's what it means to be great and to enter the kingdom of God because then you're going to receive my gift of salvation that I purchased for you on the cross by grace. After all of that, low Christians like us Childlike people enter the kingdom. He adds then here in this section that whoever receives a Christian receives him. This is a really profound idea not to just sneeze at because it's very easy to read over and very easy just to think, well, yeah, I've heard that a thousand times, but what in the world does that mean? And there is mystery to it, no doubt. But we can also understand this and, and feel the weight of this. He's saying that whoever receives a Christian, and the idea here I think is receiving the message of a Christian as well, the gospel that we bring to the world and proclaim Good news, that God died for sinful people like us. We bring that to people when that's received by a non-Christian, believed in, received, you know, entertained even just, that person is actually receiving Jesus Christ himself as well. That's how close, church, we are to Christ. That's how close he is to us. That's how much he is in us. Do you believe that? You ever wondered that before? We are unified with him, and we are so close. The Bible is clear that the church is, though Christ is everywhere, God is everywhere, it's omnipresence, that he's especially where the church gathers. We are his temple. I mean, God, God was especially present in the, in the physical building temple in the Old Testament, and the New Testament says that the church now, uh, the Christians who gather are the new spiritual temple of God. When we gather together, when we sing the glories of God through song, when we learn about the gospel in the, word, in the word, we take communion together, when we fellowship, when we break bread together, when we together bring this great message of grace to a lost world. That is Jesus. That is the closest people will get, ourselves and others watching, face-to-face with Christ before he comes back. We're not replacing Christ. We're not one-to-one with Christ, but we are an extension of his glory in the world. Isn't that incredible? We've already talked about these things already. Jesus has in so many terms in Matthew 16, uh, 19, when he says here in the bottom, I will give you, and this is Jesus saying this to uh, Peter, uh, but ultimately uh, the church, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's just saying that when you tell someone about Jesus Christ and what he's done for them, you are actually unlocking heaven. You're unlocking the new earth. You're unlocking eternal life. You're loosing them from the chains of their sin. They're no longer prisoners to it. But to those who reject, we are, and it's actually Christ in us doing that, we are locking them. They're remaining locked. They're remaining bound. There is no other way. So our message and our ministry is so inextricably connected with Jesus, the only way back to God, that it can be said that we loose and bind people eternally when we bring that message to people. And we can't force them to respond one way or the other, but when Jesus is talking these terms, he's saying that they are being loosed or they're being bound. They're, they're receiving me through you or they're rejecting me to my face through you. I think, too, one great example of this is in the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul, actually before he was an apostle, he was a Christian persecuting Jew who was beating up, murdering, imprisoning Christians on his way to do more of that in a town called Damascus, in Asia Minor, or, or south of that. On his way, Jesus appears to him. And one of the first things he says to Paul is, Paul, or his name was Saul before it was changed to Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The first thing he says. When, when, when Paul was 
persecuting and imprisoning Christians, he was doing that to Jesus himself. And Jesus says, you're actually doing that. That's how close Christians are, how wedded to him spiritually we are. And so if that's the case, then it just, it's the ramifications for ministry and for evangelism and just for personal devotion of gratefulness, closeness to God are just off the charts. We don't have time for all of that today. But to see it here is, is, is to pick up on a greater theme that Jesus has been teaching so far here uh, in the gospel account. So the church is that manifestation of Christ honored. Inasmuch, of course, as we hold to his word, there is such a thing as false teachers and all of that, of course. But in general, as we hold to his word in the Bible and live by the Spirit, we're the manifestation of Christ on earth. So, and the flip, though, is true as well. So people respond well to the message of a childlike Christian, and they respond to Christ through that. The flip is true as well. It's the flip side of the same coin. If a Christian is rejected, or as he, as he says here, I think a close uh, a phrase for this also is led into sin somehow. Two different things, but I think the same idea. If their message is rejected, those people can certainly be forgiven because Christ died for that sin. But assuming that they don't, and that they throughout life reject the good news, the only hope they have, as Jesus says twice here, is the hell of fire, or the eternal fire, the eternal hell. That's it. Because the message of the church is the message of Jesus. The message of the church is the only message of hope. There is no other way to him. And we alone have, have those keys. So a very, 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 very close connection between Jesus Christ himself and his gathered people on earth. All right, so this is a particular warning you could say to the world uh, here. To hear the heralding of good news of the church, receive it, uh, and all of that. And, uh, but then he widens this a bit more to be more global in scope. So his train of thought is basically, he was asked a question by the disciples. He responded to that question, talking about greatness and being childlike and so forth. Then he kind of starts to think about his, his children being weak and how they're going to be tempted and attacked and sometimes led into sin as well. Tempted and attacked like Jesus later would be too. Big theme in the scriptures as well. Then he actually talks about how he, he threatens the people who threaten his people as well, right? He says, for anyone who's going to lead my people into sin, it will be better if they have a millstone hung around their neck. This will be a better end for them. It would be better to drown in the ocean with a millstone hung around your neck uh, than where their ultimate end is going to take them if they don't repent and come back to me and, and be cleansed of those sins. So we don't know a ton about the specifics of hell in the scriptures apart from what is revealed. But a lot of times the Bible does this. Jesus will say, that as opposed to this is what it is, he'll say it's worse than this. So at least have a category for it to say that hell does exist and we don't exactly know what, what it is, all the details, but we know it's worse than drowning with a big chunk of concrete over our necks in the ocean. It's much worse than that. So it'd be better if that would happen for, for these people. But, but one thing I want you to see here before we come back to some of that judgment imagery and the, and the whole gouging of the eye stuff here in just a minute is how amazing it is, don't read over this, that Jesus threatens those who threaten you. Isn't that incredible? You ever know that about God? He, he's threatening people who threaten you and tempt you to, to lead you into sin. This is how much God loves you. Praise God this is the case. And praise God it's not the other way around. I mean, God is not a lazy husband letting his wife fall into all kinds of sin and harm while he just kind of watches TV on the couch. God is jealous for you. God loves you. God threatens and hates things that threaten and hate you. And he's active against it. And so like any good husband would go to war for his wife. Like in my marriage, if someone wants to hurt my wife, they will have to kill me <laughs> before they get to her. They will. They'll have to kill me over my dead body, literally, will you touch my wife. If they, and I'll get angry, and I'll get, be jealous for her, and I'll fight for her. How much more is that true for God? Right? This is how we need to think. Because it's a demonstration. Marriage is a demonstration of these truths. We are the bride of Christ, the Bible says. He is our husband, and the church is his bride. One of the most common metaphors for our relationship with God in general, salvation in the scriptures. And so it makes perfect sense that he would be an angry, jealous, protective, angry in a good way, wrathful in a good way, protective, jealous, loving husband to us. Some of you guys may have no category for that because no one's ever fought for you like that in your life. And this is just gibberish. But fight to understand these things. It is true. This is what God thinks of you right now. He's like this to you. 
He loves you on this level. He loves you in this way. In so many other ways. But he is like a loving, protective warrior husband who is saying, over my dead body. And in one sense, he does die for us, right? In one sense, Christ says, over my dead body, I will redeem my bride. Over my dead body, I will cleanse her. Over my dead body on the cross, I will forgive her sins. Over my dead body, I will crush sin. But here we have a particular angle on this where he's saying, as they're going out through their life and before I come back a second time to those who lead them into temptation, who, who lead them into sin, and who, who persecute and threaten them, this is the ultimate end to them. If they do not themselves repent and see their sin and come to me for forgiveness, which is certainly many times, not just possible, but many times does happen. So that's his train of thought, going from the kids all the way down to widening this out then to the threatened thing, widening out, making this more global in scale. Woe to the world because of sin. So the kid issue, the threatened issue, then he kind of just gets big and says, he starts thinking more about sin. Woe to the world for temptations to sin and because of sin. So Jesus' particular uh, encouragement here to cut off hands and, and gouge out, tear out eyes, uh, is coming back full circle here a bit to Christians. This is something that, that if you're, you're not a Christian, we can't do in the way that the Bible is teaching. Uh, but we'll talk about that here in a minute. But it's going to come back full circle to the disciples, even though it kind of went global here. We'll bounce that in a second. But let me make a few comments about all this imagery. We'll talk about the eyes and the hands thing uh, towards the end, but a couple of general comments to begin when Jesus spins off on this woe to the world because of sin. That's what, woe is another word for the idea here is cursed. Woe, look out, judgment's coming because of sin. I think one of the things that we learn from Jesus' statement there is this reminds us, because it's certainly not the first time we hear it, but it reminds us what the real problem in the world is. It's us. It's ourselves. And it's the sin inside us. But Jesus does not say here, woe to the world because of physical poverty. Right? He does not say, woe to the world because of corrupt governments or sickness or outer filth of various kinds. Though there's some, some sense to which we can connect those things to the greater disease of sin. But that's not really what he's doing here anyway. He's saying rather, woe to the world for temptations to sin. That's why I'm here. That's the problem. That's the issue to, to see before you as unaddressable on the one hand that only Christ can fix. On the other hand, by his grace and his work in your life that we can start to address as well. So relatedly then, it reminds us that sin, we talk about the kingdom too. He uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, it's synonymous with it. Sin is this decisive issue as to whether or not we enter the kingdom because believing that you're an adult, not a child, is a version of pride. It's a version of self-worship and arrogance. It's, it's this inner filth that's entwined with our DNA that we, that we cannot pluck out. So it's the sin in here, not the sin out there. Jesus is saying that sin can tempt us and prod at us He's acknowledging that here by talking about people that can lead Christians into sin and so forth. But primarily the issue is the hard issue. Inner filth, inner rebellion, inner self-worship. We talked about, we sang a song earlier, talked about revolt. Help me to deplore my revolt. That's really what sin is. There is a revolt before God. Self-worship, going our own way. Disobedience, not just a list of particular sins. Lots of peace to it. So the call here then is to address it. Just basically, Jesus says, address these things. This is indicative, or it's a, char a characteristic of a person that's entering the kingdom of God, entering that door, as they are hand-cutter offers and eye-gouger outers. So the question, the bigger question is, how do we do this? How do we address it? Jesus says, attack it, cut at it, gouge at it here. Not literally. Uh, and most people understand that, just the way this reads. Jesus is not speaking literally here, but just in case... You were thinking that, uh, don't uh, cut off your hands. Actually, there's a guy, uh, second century named Origen, one of the early church fathers, who apparently wrestled with sexual sin because he castrated himself in light of this passage. And so, you know, men, don't do that either. That's not what's being said here. Um, because we know that for a number of reasons, one of which is, uh, you know, to take this literally is not to hear the Bible repeatedly pound home that sin is internal. You can cut off your hands all you like. It's not going to fix the problem. Origen castrated himself. It did not take his sin away. It's external. Sin is primarily in here. 
not out here or even on our skin. Really, the only thing that we can gouge out, if you do want to gouge something out of your body, you can do this. The only way to gouge uh, something out of your body, take away sin, is to gouge out your hearts. But that would kill us, right? But that's actually starting to get at what we really need to take sin away from us, and that is to die. We have to die. Uh, Galatians 2.20 says, uh, in light of this, I have been crucified with Christ as a Christian. When I believed in Jesus, it's as if my old self was nailed up with him on the cross and I died. And it's no longer now I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. So when we start to unpack this greater how, going back to our question, how do we do this practically? How do we address it? Uh, Which is most definitely another sermon series, pretty much. Uh, We're going to talk about a little bit today, though. We can approach it from a couple of angles. The initial belief that we have in Jesus to do this, if you want to have your eye gouged out spiritually, in one sense, we have to acknowledge we cannot do that. We cannot change our heart. We cannot gouge out the heart or unmix our propensity to sin with our DNA. We cannot do it. We have to go by faith to Jesus and say, you have died in my place for me so that all that debt and punishment and even the the mastery of sin over me, the power of sin itself, Paul says in the book of Romans, the power of sin itself has been decisively dealt a blow to the head. It's still writhing around on the ground affecting our lives, but as a Christian, it's no longer our master. We are no longer enslaved to it. If you're not a Christian, I mean, I believe this, but you are enslaved, the Bible says, to a particular way of living that is, that is sinful or ungodly. So when we're saved, we're freed from those shackles. They can entice us, entice us back, and does all the time. We are no longer under its, under its mastery. So that initial belief, but the ongoing belief, is basically the same thing, but it's just this call to ongoingly mature in the gospel, die afresh in the gospel, suffer in the gospel, tear and gouge and grow uh, throughout our life as God enables it. So I want to get even a little bit more practical than that because that still stays pretty abstract. If you guys have been around for a while at Hiawatha, we, we use the phrase apply the gospel or apply the word of the gospel to our lives a lot, which still remains in the, the realm of being abstract. And so um, every once in a while, we try to get in as much as the scriptures teach, you know, get, um, it's fine to be abstract because the Bible stays there sometimes, but to get more to the ground level, to take the ground war approach, not just the air war approach to this and talk about what, what can this look like uh, really practically. So to do that, I want to look at a couple excerpts from a book uh, called Mortifying Sin and Believers by John Owen, who was a 16th century English uh, theologian, pastor type, a Puritan. Uh, Puritans were uh, English non-Catholics, essentially, other things too, but uh, English non-Catholics. And he wrote a lot, and I, I encourage you to read this book if you'd like. We did a sermon series on it back in 2008. Uh, well, some of you were here for that, probably. Who was here for that, that sermon series? Be killing sinner, it'll be killing you. Uh, okay, it's a decent amount. Actually, same first service. I was surprised how many hands. But um, anyway, it's been a long time. So a great sermon series of 10 weeks. I'm going to try to boil it down into four points in five minutes, which it's just not going to work, but I'm going to try it anyway. Uh, four, four things on the how. He spends a lot of time on the why is this important, what is sin at all, why is this important? Uh, the, the, uh, the benefits to it, that's only for Christians, not for non-Christians, because only Christians can kill sin in the way the Bible prescribes. And so he spends a lot of time on that. The end of the book is the big how. It's just four chapters on that. I'm going to boil it down into four points here to give some practical ideas for, is this happening in my life? Am I aggressively, he uses an image in the book that I love, just, uh, it's not quite this, but it's basically this, of beating your sin on the ground into a bloody pulp. So not stopping kicking it, but actually taking a bat and beating it over the head over and over and over and over again. That's the perspective of the Bible, and this is a very visceral image today as well. We get more in the book of Romans and how to mortify. Mortify means kill. Are we killing our sin with the strength God provides? And this is the, this is the big thing that he says, the final four points, the first three being, being preparatory, and the fourth being the main point. So it goes like this. The first is, to look for dangerous symptoms, patterns or triggers or habits you have that particularly lead you away from Jesus uh, to rebel, to disobey, and to engage in some kind of self-worship or, or pleasure or lust. Then secondly, because I'll be different for everybody, 
Secondly, feel the guilt then. Not just know, feel there is important. The guilt and danger and evil of your sin. And by the way, all these things are a lifetime of work. This is not just something you do in 60 seconds. This is, do I know the Bible really, 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 really well? Do I know my, am I honest with myself, my self-perceiving, you know, well? But understand how God reveals himself in the Bible and sin, the evil, the guilt, the danger of it. Do I really feel that? Third, then, is to focus and meditate, relatedly, on the holiness of God. So the second and third thing here are an issue. It's a problem. I have guilt, and then there's the holiness of God as well. And the only thing that's to resolve that is, is Christ himself. But if you know that answer, it's still healthy to go back to two and three and to know those things because they can still prompt you to worship and to hate your sin and to be repentant and broken before God. But it's also important to note, these three things alone will never work either. These things, Owen says, are preparatory. They're not the ultimate answer. So the ultimate answer is this, the fourth thing, which I'll read a couple of excerpts from him too that explain it, but the fourth thing is set faith at work. Set your trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Set that at work through considering robustly Christ's death, power and resurrection, and faithfulness to abide in you. Owen explains here a couple of paragraphs, and this is heavy stuff. I don't think I mentioned this, but it's Old English translated to not-so-old English, but it's still hard to read. <laughs> so I'm going to pick up this book. We have some people actually right now reading this book in our church, and if, if you want to talk with them or talk with me and talk to them, with them about how hard it is to read, I'm looking at Seth because he's one of them that's doing that. It's hard, right? Tough sledding, but it's good. Really, really good. Uh, I love that we have people that are picking up this book right now. You guys should all, should all um, someday read it. But anyway, uh, set, faith, set, faith, set Faith at Work. And he says this, or what that means. Now, the considerations which I have beforehand insisted on are rather things preparatory to the work aimed at than such as will affect it. It is the heart's due preparation for the work itself without which it will not be accomplished that up to this point I have aimed at. So stop right there. He's just saying the first three things we looked at they're all preparatory. They're preparing the heart to want the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think I skipped over that graph, didn't I, um, Tara? That's fine. You can go back to that, actually, just to make sure this is clear. The things on the left here, this is the second and third thing on the left. Feeling the guilt of your sin, considering the greatness of God. We really feel the weight of those two things over and over and over again. It's the only thing that will lead us to the right side category, to thinking deeply about and well about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This Owen is saying here is things on the left are preparatory, but the thing on the right is really what we need. So pick up in the middle here. Directions for the work itself are very few, I mean, that are peculiar to it. And they are these that follows. Set faith at work on Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this, and you will die a conqueror. Yea, you will, through the good providence of God, Live to see your lust dead at your feet. Moving down. I shall freely say, he says, this one thing of establishing the soul by faith or trust in Jesus Christ alone, the expectation of relief from Jesus Christ, on the account of his mercifulness as our high priest, will be more available to the ruin of your lust and distemper and have a better and speedier issue than all the rigidest means of self-maceration that ever any of the sons of men engaged themselves unto. Yea, let me add that never any soul did or shall perish by the power of any lust, sin, or corruption who could raise his soul by faith to an expectation from Jesus Christ. So let me try to translate that a little bit here. It's still uh, tough sledding. He's basically saying this expectation of Jesus Christ is thoughtful reflection on what's actually true about you right now in Jesus Christ. And I love that he talks about the self-maceration thing here as well, which is, the avenue, it is the way that every other religion except Christianity takes. It is to self-macerate. It is to deny yourself physically things to help you battle sin. It is not to take the route of just believing that Jesus Christ has taken care of it and is by his spirit on a regular basis. So killing sin then is not self-maceration, but it's not sheer physical self-denial alone, but about believing in Jesus Christ alone, robustly, and all that the scriptures say about what's true about you now. So, if you take an example like a, like a sex addiction, like a pornography addiction, for an example, self maceration would be throwing your computer out the window. Uh, self maceration would be getting a um, 
internet filter on your computer. Self-maceration would look like uh, just sheerly drawing on willpower or something outside of you, uh, that, or something inside of you, I should say, your own willpower to deny it and uh, not on Christ. But a biblical theological approach would simply meditate on the thoughts of, like Romans 6, you are no longer slaves to sin. Do you believe that? And chances are, when you're engaging in sin, you just don't. You haven't thought about it for months, maybe years. It's also thinking about things like, I am a child of God. That is what I am. I have an absolutely new name written, these are all biblical terms, new name written on my forehead. I have been bought back from sin and death. That's actually metaphysically true right now. Do you believe it? You know, I can say from my experience, no. When I'm sinning, I don't believe it. Or I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not setting my faith at work to conquer that. I'm not setting my faith practically at work against the temptations. The, the fork in the road I have to pursue sin or to pursue godliness, in that moment, when I pursue sin, I'm not setting my faith at work practically in my mind. But do you at least see the difference here? That pursuing Christ and pursuing belief in the gospel robustly is very different from self-maceration. These things are cutting off your hand type things, gouging out your eye type things. It won't work. The spiritual dimension of that, though, however, will, will always work. So, so the bigger question is, are you gouging and tearing? Are those words that are accurately describing how viscerally you address your sin and your inner rebellion against God and your self-worship? And whenever you say no, because you all should say no to that, because <laughs> we, we all are not doing it perfectly. When you say that, run back to the cross, ask for help, know your Bibles better, get to know what's true about you in Christ. There are things that are true about you now spiritually that a lot of you don't even know yet. And Neil Anderson, a professor of uh, practical theology at uh, Talbot, I think that's California, but I'm not sure, says that it's impossible to live in a way that's inconsistent with how you view yourself. It's impossible to live in a way that's inconsistent with how you view yourself. Do you view yourself as a child of God? Because you are. Do you view yourself as unenslaved to sin? Because you are. Do you view yourself as a master over it? Because you are. Do you view yourself as loved and purchased back by the blood of Jesus Christ? Because you have been. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. So it's, it's impossible if you don't believe those things. That's, not, that's what it means by putting faith at work. You're actually practicing, trusting, and having faith in those things. And through those means, you are, you are killing your sin. These are all, we could talk for hours on this, but these are examples of what's indicative or what's true about people who are childlike, who are entering the kingdom, who have one eye, who have one hand, but who are great and loved by their God nonetheless. So to conclude then, uh, to summarize, basically two things here then. The first section, all about God's grace and humility. Zechariah 4, 6, God speaking. It's not by your strength or by might that you're saved, but by my spirit, says the Lord God of hosts. You must become like a child to enter we will never, all of us will never enter the kingdom of God without humbling ourselves first and becoming weak, at recognizing that we just are blind, weak, pitiable, and poor. Uh, praise God this is the case. Praise God it does not say become like a Bible scholar again or a perfect mature adult. Praise God that this, this is not the truth. What the truth is, is to become weak instead, which we all are anyway. Relatedly, sin is a big, ugly deal, must be addressed in the Christian's life, first at the cross, then ongoingly so, in our constant, continual reorientation to that cross in the context of the church. I say here, including our pride, it's the thing here that Jesus threatens, that he says, woe to uh, the world in account of. It's the thing people of God believe Jesus gouges, he has, praise God, out of our hearts. And they keep in step with that greater belief in how they live and think. Again, they don't self-macerate, they believe and cast themselves on Jesus over and over and over and over again rigorously. So when we do that, I think we balance conquering, as Owen says, he uses the word conquering our sin, with complete self-emptying at the same time. Uh, Self-emptying, childlike, Jesus-focused faith. And again, I'll I'll close with this. This is who's going to enter the kingdom of God. It's basically what Jesus is saying here. Talking about the nature of the kingdom, how we get in, and who are the types that are entering. Childlike, crippled, 
one-eyed sinners who happily cling to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. For many of you, that's you. For a lot of you, uh, it's just not you. You don't perceive yourself that way. Some of you want that today. Wherever you are, this is what God is saying. Come to me if you are burdened, if you're weary, I will give you rest. Come to me open-handed, weak, poor. I will save you from your sins. I will gouge the sin out. I will help you cut your hand off in a spiritual sense. I will raise you up from the dead. I will actually crucify you with me and give you a brand new life, but it's me living in you, not you. All of those promises are wrapped up into what Christ does for us on the cross. If you believe that, it's yours. It's yours. So the invitation for us is to freshly receive that wherever we are spiritually today and and to believe that he is sufficient and that he has, as always, taken our sins away. Praise God. Let me close in prayer. God, thank you for today for your grace in the gospel of Christ uh, that reminds us uh, it, through uh, wonderful uh, imagery today that we are, in fact, childlike before you. It's those who believe that that enter. Uh, thank you for the, the picture of how you love us as a husband, how you threaten things that threaten your bride and your wife, who you cherish and love, who purchased back with your blood from sin and death, and who you've clothed in beautiful white garments, as the scriptures teach Thank you for your incredible love, the incredible love even by which that you expose our sin because we've got to hear that to enter. Thank you for the hard things in life, the laws that condemn us, that we might look elsewhere besides ourselves and our circumstance and our comfort to be saved. Thank you for working in those capacities as well. Many of us, in a heightened sense, are going through very difficult things today. But God, though you're not the cause of evil, God, you are gracious in those things and you bring them into our lives to to bring us back to you. Now, whatever the truth, the word, or the experience, or the laws, or even the Bible, whatever it is, we are oriented to you and constantly, humbly, even offensively see how little it has to do with us, how we are nothing when we think we are something. Forgive us for thinking that we are something. Uh, You are something. We are nothing. We're just the creatures. God, save us afresh. Gouge sin out of our eyes. Pluck it out of our guts. Take it out of our DNA, God. Uh, Raise us up into new life and help us to address through the means of reflection on the cross, thinking robustly about it, knowing who we are in you, how we're just different now uh, through those means by faith, as Owen says, applying that to the way that we live this week. Um, Grow us in that. Mature us in that. Pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond with